And uh, if you've been tracking with us for a while, you might notice we're going backwards a little bit. Um, and uh, I don't really have a good reason why. Somehow we skipped over this passage, and usually when things like that happen, I believe that God ordains it. So for whatever reason, this is the, the week to hear uh, from this passage that Paul is uh, speaking to us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14, says this, Do not be equally unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So when I was in seminary, I learned Greek and Hebrew, and uh, being someone that, you know, being the fact that Greek and Hebrew, at least in the, the form that they're in the Bible, isn't really spoken anymore, though the language is spoken, you know, it, it's hard to get proficient in those languages. And so I was introduced to this software program called BibleWorks when I was in seminary, and it has a lot of uh, Greek and Hebrew resources for pastors and scholars, and it just made life so much simpler because it you know, helped you kind of parse through different verses and different chapters. It had a lot of searching features. It was an amazing program. So I was introduced to this program. It was astronomically expensive, but it just made everything so much easier. And so over the years, I kind of bought add-ons to that. I bought like different dictionaries, Greek dictionaries, and, and I just really liked the interface of this program. When I became a pastor, I used it literally every week to help prepare for sermons. Then, in 2018, I received news that this company that made BibleWorks, is just a little small company, I think it was just like one individual who made this program, they were going out of business. And so that was fine because I had it on my computer, but they said, you know, kind of new updates are going to be kind of iffy, especially on Macs. They said, PC, you might be able to use it for longer than on a Mac. So I got a Mac, and it was starting to do some kind of weird things, shutting down and stuff. And it became, came to, to be time to get a new computer. And so I was so dedicated to this program that I'm like, I want to use this program as long as I can, so I'm going to switch over to a PC so that I can keep using this program. So I go and I buy a PC, and it worked for a while. But then the hard drive uh, went bad after about a year on this PC. And then I tried to load the program back onto the computer, and it wouldn't work. So then I had another Mac that I uh, had bought from somebody secondhand. And so I started using that. And I was determined, I have to get this program to work on my Mac. So I did everything that I could. I downloaded. I mean, conceivably, I should have been able to download it on my computer. I would download it, install it. It wouldn't work. I tried again. I probably tried the same thing like 10 times because I just wanted it to work so bad. 
I went on message boards. I even tried running a program called Parallax where you could run Windows and Mac on the same computer. I tried everything that I could and yet it wouldn't work. And finally I had to come to the realization that it's a great program, it's just not compatible with these modern computers given the fact that it wasn't updated. Compatibility or incompatibility. There are a number of things in our culture that we think about as incompatible. For example, there's, there's incompatible colors. Have you ever watched like where they do like the color rush uniforms or they'll do some throwback uniforms in football? And some of them are kind of cool and some of them are just like weird. You know, it just looks like somebody threw up. You got like yellow and green and purple and black and it's all mixed together. It doesn't go. You know, and the colors in and of themselves are fine, but you put them together and it, they just don't mesh. You know, or you have incompatible drugs. You know, one drug could save somebody's life, but if it's taken with another drug, it could actually kill someone. You have relationships. There's a lot of uh, talk about compatibility in relationships. Now, as a believer, I believe that, you know, Two believers can work through any issue, that there's compromise and, and that you can work in Christ towards any issue, but there are some kind of visions or personalities that are incompatible with others. For example, if one spouse wants to go and be a missionary in Botswana and the other wants to stay in Buffalo, you can't do both things. There's no compromise there. You can't go halfway. There's no compromise. Those are incompatible visions. If one spouse wants to have seven children and the other wants to have zero, those are incompatible visions. You can't have both. If one par par uh, partner is neat, wants everything tidy and in order, the other spouse is messy, wants to just throw things around, there's an issue. There's a compatibility issue there. If one spouse wants to eat healthy, the other wants to go to Burger King every day, there's an issue. It doesn't say that you can't work through those things as believers, but those are compatibility issues. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul talks about this idea of incompatibility. And specifically, he's mentioned, he says that believers are incompatible with unbelievers. Believers are incompatible with unbelievers. And he gives a number of kind of explanations for what that looks like. And he says, first of all, he says that believers and unbelievers have different purposes. First, different goals. A believer's goal is to please the Lord to honor him, to do everything that he or she can to bring him praise and glory. A person who's not a believer doesn't have that same goal. Uh, they're perhaps living for themselves, living for some morality that they've created for themselves, just kind of going their own way. And so there's different goals between believers and unbelievers. He says that believers and unbelievers have different natures. In verse 14, he says, What fellowship has light with darkness? People who are believers have been made new, regenerated. We still have the sin nature that lives inside of us, but we've been made new. We've brought into the kingdom of light. Uh, he talks about light not fellowshipping with darkness. If you were to turn off all the lights in this sanctuary, and if I were to have a flashlight, the flashlight would overtake the light, or overtake the darkness as far as the flashlight shone. But the light doesn't mix with the darkness. Light and darkness are two separate things, and believers and unbelievers have two, two different natures, Paul says. He goes on, he says, believers and unbelievers have different masters. In verse 15, Paul says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Uh, Belial is another name for the devil. It uh, probably means worthlessness 
or possibly destruction. And of course, Paul is not meaning to say that everyone who's not a believer worship the devil. He's not saying that. But if you're not under the authority of Christ, you're under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, the scripture tells us. You're under the authority of the evil one, if whether you know it or not. Remember what Paul says just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, in their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He goes on, he says, believers and unbelievers, uh, or believers have something that unbelievers do not have. Paul concludes and says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Believers have a relationship with Christ, a, a hope of eternal life. They have the inheritance that's given to them by Christ. Unbelievers don't have that. Finally, Paul says, unbelievers and believers worship different things. In verse 16, Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Those who are believers worship Christ. Those who are not believers worship idols. And that doesn't mean that they bow down to some statue. It means that they've made something other than Christ the most important thing in their life. Whether that's a career or a family or a hobby, whatever that is, it could be even a good thing. They've made that kind of the center of their life, the thing that drives their affections and their motivation. And so Paul says believers and unbelievers worship different things. So all of this is fairly straightforward. I mean, Paul, I mean, it's pretty clear a believer is different than an unbeliever. A believer thinks differently than an unbeliever. So wh why does Paul bring this up? What's the point of this? I think Paul's point, he says in, in, in uh, chapter, uh, verse 14, he says that believers should not be un, un, unequally yoked with unbelievers. Believers should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So what is he talking about here? When you think about the concept of a yoke, in the ancient world, uh, there would be kind of a harness. You've probably seen them in pictures or if you go to a museum Oftentimes it was a kind of a wood harness that would go over both animals. It could be just one single animal, but often it was two animals or more. And so the harness would go over their back, and then they would carry a cart or a plow or whatever they were carrying. And Paul says you have to have the yoke equally matched. So if you have a, a yoke and you have a donkey with a cow, the cow is going to probably carry along the donkey. If you have a horse with a cow, the horse is going to want to be galloping ahead and the cow is going to be walking slowly. And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It's also used, this word, uh, the Greek word eteragusio, uh, it's used in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Uh, and it speaks of being mismatched, specifically of uh, different kinds of cattle breeding together. Look at what it says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. It says, you shall keep my statues. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall sow, not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of materials. So we look at the verse like this, and this is kind of the one, one of the verses that we think of as kind of silly, Right? I mean, you think about the book of Leviticus, and it's like, oh yeah, there's this command where you can't sow two different kinds of seeds in one field, or, or put polyester and cotton together. I mean, it's kind of crazy for us to think about. It's one of those strange, silly verses in the Bible, but it's important. 
And first of all, we need to realize this, this isn't a command for us. This was for Israel. This doesn't mean that it's wrong to plant tomatoes with peppers. Doesn't mean it's wrong to wear polyester and cotton together. This isn't for us. This was for Israel specifically. So we need to remember that. First, we need to remember also that this isn't a moral issue. It's not that two different kinds of cattle breeding together is inherently wrong. It's not that two different kinds of seed put together is inherently wrong. This isn't a moral issue. But Israel, as God's nation, the kind of the showcase of the nation, God uh, called Israel to being to kind of showcase his glory, to show the world what God is like. He gave them this command to kind of serve as a picture, to show them what God is like, and to show them the fact that they need to be separated from the world around them. And specifically, we see in the Old Testament, especially during the time of the judges and the kings, that they were called to be separated from the people called the Canaanites. Specifically, they were told not to intermarry with the Canaanites. This wasn't a racial thing, this was a spiritual thing. We know it's not a racial thing because we see in the line of Christ there were actually a number of people who were Canaanites who were in the line of Christ. So this wasn't a racial thing, this was a spiritual thing because God knew that these foreign nations, these Canaanites, they were, they were often uh, engaging in child sacrifices. They were doing these terrible things and God knows if you get too close to them, if you marry them and become a part of their culture, you're going to become like them and you're going to be turned astray from the living God. So he gives them the command in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So often when we hear this passage being spoken of, Oftentimes, you know, the application is you shouldn't date someone who's not a believer or you shouldn't marry someone who's not a believer. Uh, and certainly that's one application of this passage. But in this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul isn't talking about marriage. And just as an aside, that, you know, that's something that is one application and certainly we shouldn't marry or uh, date someone who's not a believer because there's a main compatibility issue. But also, if you're married to an unbeliever, that's... That's a different story. You're already in that covenant relationship and just pray for your spouse. Be Jesus to that spouse. But that's just an aside. The main point is not about marriage. The main point is how we relate to the world around us. So how do we kind of juggle the command that we're given in the Scripture where Jesus calls us to love those around us, love the world, disciple the world? How do we balance that with this call to be separate, to have kind of a separation from the world. How do we balance those two things? First, I think in general, in the Old Testament, when we're talking about separation, it was kind of a physical separation. Like, don't get too close to them. Now, in, in, in the New Testament, I think there's, it's more of a spiritual separation. It's not about disassociating from the world. It's about being Christ in the world. And I think Paul explains exactly what that means when he makes a very profound statement in verse 16, where he says, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. He says, we are the temple of the living God. When he's talking about the temple here, uh, the Greek word that's used for temple is used for not just the temple complex. You know, the temple had different, you know, a number of different uh, you know, stations in the temple. He's specifically referring to the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. 
So you think about the temple complex proper, and you know there were actually during some points in Israel's history there there's, there were spots where uh, Gentiles could even enter into the temple, in kind of the outer court. But as you got deeper and deeper into the temple, specifically when you got to the Holy of Holies, it was guarded. It was exclusive. In fact, only the high priest, one time a year, chosen by lot, could go into the Holy of Holies. And if he didn't do what was right, if he wasn't, his heart wasn't right with God, it could mean his death. If someone tried to break into the Holy of Holies, it could be deadly. So that's kind of the the, the point of the Holy of Holies is the fact that it was guarded, it was separate. And so Paul says, you have the presence of Christ living inside of you as the implication is that we're not to allow uh, anyone to defile that temple. In other words, as believers, we need to guard our hearts as the place where God dwells. We need to guard our hearts. Means that we don't necessarily share the deepest recesses of our hearts with someone who's not a believer. Let me give you an example. Let's say you feel like God is calling you to go to Africa to preach the gospel. And you call up your friend who's not a believer and you say, Hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm really thinking about going to Africa, make Christ's name known in Africa. What do you think I should do? How do you think they're going to respond? Do you know what you're getting into? I mean, how are you going to support yourself? I mean, you've never been to Africa before. You know there's a lot of bugs there. You know it's hot there. You're going to just leave your whole family behind. You're going to forsake everyone. How could you do something like that? Yeah, I'll tell you what. If you really want some adventure, go on a cruise. Go on a cruise. Then you can see the whole coast of Africa. You don't even have to get off the boat. You'll have a great time. I think the problem is sometimes when we come to an unbeliever and kind of share uh, the deepest parts of our hearts and saying, okay, here's what I'm struggling with, or here's what my dream is, now what do you think I should do? Of course we're not going to get godly wisdom because the person is not a believer. It's, about, it's, it's like if you were going to go to a car dealership and ask the salesman, can you help me with my budget? Can you help me save money? I mean, they might try to, but that's not what they're there for. They're to, they're to add something to your budget, to sell you something. So we think about this and kind of the separation from the world and think about how do we know if we're kind of getting too close? How do we know if we've kind of crossed the line? And I think there's a helpful question in, in thinking about this. And that is, is Jesus transforming us or is someone or something else transforming us? Is Jesus the one that's transforming our hearts, or is someone or something else transforming us? And Paul talks about relationships because often relationships are things that can lull us into complacency. We, we maybe love some, a person, which is good, which we're called to do, but we fail to guard our hearts, and the result is our hearts are drawn away from Christ. That's what happened in the Old Testament again and again and again. God told the Israelites, don't intermarry with these foreign nations who do these terrible things. And yet again and again, they start to compromise. It's the relationship that brings them away from God. It happens over and over again. And we think about the command in the Old Testament to be holy, to be separate. Now, that meant a lot of different things for Israel. It meant that they were different in how they planted their seeds, the clothing that they wore. 
Now, it doesn't mean those things for us, but Christ still calls us to be different. It looks different than it did for the Israelites, but he calls us to live lives of holiness. Look at what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7-8, Paul says this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. And then in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So Christ calls us to be holy. He calls us to be separate from the world as his sons and daughters. He calls us to look like him, not like the world. But the reality is it's so so easy to get complacent and turn our hearts away from Christ. There's a man by the name of Shane Maxner, and on January 14, 2005, he died uh, in in an avalanche. The 27-year-old went snowboarding with his friends, place called a park, uh, a ski resort outside of Park City, Utah. He rode the ski lift, hiked up the backcountry gate, went outside to this area called the Dutch Draw Gate, went through this gate that was posted that's warned people of avalanches. He starts snowboarding, and on the second time down, they call avalanche, but it's too late, and he gets buried in snow. Now, people heard about this, and they wrote about kind of the reckless nature of what he did, and people assume that he didn't know what he was doing. They just kind of went off the path and went somewhere he shouldn't be. But as you looked further, that wasn't the truth. He was an experienced guide. He was one of a few people who were considered to be avalanche certified backcountry guides. Him and two other people in his party had avalanche gear, were experienced in knowing about the avalanches. But they didn't even bring them with them when they went snowboarding. One outdoor enthusiast knows that this is not an unusual occurrence. This actually happens often. He writes, Skiers with the most, adv- most avalanche training are more likely to be seduced into faulty reasoning by factors like track slopes and group enthusiasm. He continues, Max Maxner didn't die because he was a fool. Like his friends, he was lulled into letting his guard down. Sometimes we can do the same thing. We can get lulled into letting our guard down, not guarding our hearts. And we can let uh, iniquity come into our hearts. D.A. Carson puts it this way, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We live in a culture where there's no longer any kind of unifying moral foundation. There's nothing that kind of tethers us to morality. And so what you see is kind of the, the loudest voice or the most convincing voice kind of wins the day. And you see this over and over again as morality kind of changes and will continue to change. Uh, one example is you think back to 2004. In 2004, uh, 60% of Americans disapproved of homosexual marriage. 
Today, the number is 60% that actually approves of homosexual marriage. Now, the moral issues haven't changed, but people's perspectives have changed. Culture has changed. And we see that with that issue, but also a number of issues where we're not tethered to God's word anymore. We no longer have this unifying moral foundation. So morality is subject to change. It's going to continue to change. You know, we see that in our culture with, you know, the increased use and acceptability of recreational drugs. Uh, I was surprised to learn that even in 2020, there was a bill presented to the New York, New York State uh, legislator to legalize prostitution. Um, there are so many things that are becoming more and more commonplace. Most people today believe sex outside of marriage is morally acceptable. Uh, an increasing number of people view pornography as acceptable. And so culture is going to change. People's views are going to change. Morality is going to change in our culture because as a culture, we're not tethered to any morality. Like the, the, the author of the book of Judges wrote, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what we see in our culture. Whatever's right in my eyes, whatever I feel like is right and moral, that is what's right and moral for me. So that's going to happen because we're not tethered to God's word anymore. But as believers, this should not be. As believers, we have an anchor in God's word. We don't have to debate whether this or that is right or wrong. In most cases, in most cases, God's word clearly shows us what's right and wrong. And yet it's so easy to kind of get caught up in the, the wave of popular opinion in our culture and to be indoctrinated in the ways of the world rather than being transformed by Christ. Amy Carmichael puts it this way famous missionary to India, she said, certain it is that the reason there is so much shallow living, much talk but little obedience, is that there are so few are prepared to be like the pine on the hilltop, alone in the wind for God. Is Jesus transforming us or is someone or something else transforming us? Ladies and gentlemen, we need to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Is there a difference between the way that we think, act, and behave, and the way that the world thinks, acts, and behaves? If there's no difference, then most likely we belong to the world system. Most likely we're not following Christ. And we see this so often in the church in the United States, where the church looks more like the world than like Christ. But this cannot be. We serve a great and mighty God who gave everything for us. And the motivation for our holiness is not just the desire to be different for different sake. It's because we want to be like Christ. And Paul gives the kind of the foundation for holiness, the foundation for being set apart. And that is because we are children of God. He cites a number of Old Testament passages where he says that Christ has promised to make his dwelling among us, that we will be his sons and daughters, that God will be a father to us. And that's the motivation for our holiness because we want to be like our perfect heavenly father and he wants the best for us. And he's the only one worthy of our love and devotion. Scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He said, a friend of mine described the reaction when he went home as a young teenager and announced to his mother that he'd become a Christian. Alarmed, she thought he'd join some kind of cult. They brainwashed you, she said. He was ready with the right answer. He said, if you'd seen what was in my brain, he replied, you'd realize it needed washing. Of course, he hadn't been brain, brainwashed, Wright says. 
In fact, again and again, and this was certainly the case with my friend, when people bring their lives, their outer lives, and their inner lives into the light of Jesus the Messiah, things begin to become clear. If anything, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us, persuading us in a thousand subtle ways that the present world is the only one there is. This is seldom argued. Rather, a mood is created in which it seems so much easier to go with the flow. That's what happens in brainwashing. Brainwashing. What the gospel does is to administer a sharp jolt, to shine a bright light, to kickstart the brain and the moral sensibility into working properly for the first time. Is Jesus transforming us or is someone or something else transforming us? Christ calls us to live lives that are different. Live lives of holiness. It's not the prim and proper holiness of yesterday where you know, we just avoid kind of culturally inappropriate behaviors or what we think is inappropriate, but where we desire to honor Christ in everything that we do. To honor him in how we talk. Honor him how we think. Honor him how we behave. Honor him with how we deal with relationships. It's not just being different. You know, sometimes people who are believers, they're like, oh, I'm going to be different for Christ. And it's not they're being different for Christ, they're just being weird. You know, and they're just doing things that are weird for weirdness sake because they're weird. That's not what Christ is calling us to. He's not calling us to be weird. He's calling us to be different. Calling us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a story I heard about a young girl who was Hindu, grew up Hindu, and she encountered a, a, a few Christians. And someone asked her to describe, what's a Christian? What's a Christian like? And she, she uh, described Christians this way. She said, Christians are people who are different than anyone else. That's what Christ calls us to. Calls us to be different than everyone else because we have a relationship with Christ. He's given us everything. He's given us an inheritance, a home in heaven. He's made us his sons and daughters. And so in response, we're called to be like him. Not to be indoctrinated in the ways of the world, but he's the one who transforms us. Not to listen to the voices around us, but to listen first and foremost to his voice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you that by faith, you've made us into sons and daughters. That you've given us a new nature. You've given us a new hope. You've given us a new inheritance. And Lord, in response to that, we pray that you'd conform us more and more into your image. That we would love like you love. That we would forgive like you forgive. That we would honor you in everything that we do. Lord, keep us on track. It's so easy to get lost in the wave of culture. As Amy Carmichael said, let us be that lone pine standing in the wind, willing to go anywhere to do anything for your name and your renown. In Christ's name I pray, amen.